Welcome to the Rock Podcast. We pick up our study here in 2 Kings chapter 3 with Moab's revolt against Israel. Israel and the allied forces will go after the enemy and in the process learn a big lesson about their dire dependence upon God. Here now is Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Digging Ditches. Alrighty, good evening. Let's get started. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 3, 2 Kings 3. We'll pick up where we left off, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Old Testament. The great chapter, very inspiring tonight, valuable insights as always. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing and then we'll dig in. Amen? Amen. Now, Heavenly Father, we just open our hearts to your spirit who is here to do a a work in us through the living word. We have the written word in our laps and we're we're studying, we're opening uh, up the scriptures to uh, show ourselves approved by rightly dividing, by trying to understand and and, um, put this word, hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you, Lord. So speak to us. We're, we're here, we're serious, we, we want you to encourage our faith. We want to leave this place uh, better equipped to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we pick up our study. We are 800 years out from Jesus and the manger. All right, so eight, about 850 years uh, B.C. Uh, Elisha has now replaced Elijah as God's mouthpiece to his people, really Israel's only hope, because they have nobody else but the prophets who are walking with God. Most of the kings are corrupt, especially in Israel. So the torch has been passed, and we've got Elisha there as the prophet, and Israel remains divided, all right? So Israel, we have once again a map for you to recall where we are now. Ahab in the north is king of Israel proper, and Ahab has died, and Ahab's son, Ahaziah, picked up and reigned for two years before he had a tragic accident and fell fell out of a second-story balcony. And when he died, then his brother, uh, Joram, is now on the throne. He'll reign for 12 years. All this time, King Jehoshaphat uh, is, has been reigning even through the reign of their fathers. And so the, the southern tribes are here, as always, Israel, and the north uh, called Israel, Israel and Judah, all right, respectively there. So Second Kings continues telling the sad story, and it's sad because God is doing miraculous works through his prophets uh, uh, to kind of woo the, his people back. And they're divided as a nation, but they're also divided spiritually. And they're, they're, they've turned away from the Lord. And so Second Kings, First Kings and Second Kings was originally one book. 
And it's the story, really, of the Lord calling his people and his people uh, consistently resisting him. Uh, the key verse to First and Second Kings is found in Second Kings 17. And I have that for you. The Lord warned Israel and Judah, so the two divided nations, they're really... It's really Israel, but they're divided and, and as two kingdoms. And the Lord was warning both of them through, through his prophets and seers, the same word, synonym, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and they were stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord uh, their God. And so that's really uh, what, we're, what we're talking about. Now, Second Kings, from here on out to chapter 25, and then we'll be done with Second Kings. Uh, you, uh, we are on a clock, uh, on a time clock to disaster for both. Why don't you put the, both the, the, the kingdoms back up there for, oh, actually the exile slide. Thank you. So the rest of 2 Kings is really counting down. For the north kingdom of Israel, you have about 80 to 100 years left before Assyria is going to come in and is going to take them away out of the promised land. The 10 tribes, the 10 lost tribes, that's where that phrase comes from. All right, And they never come back. That's why they're called the 10 lost tribes. All right, so... Uh, that's about 150 uh, years away, and or so 100 years, and then t- about 250 years later, because Judah is going to be more faithful. They don't worship the golden calves; they have actually the temple there. And so, because they're more faithful, but not perfectly faithful, because they're rebellious as well. And then the Lord has it with them. And then in five. 30, 550, 560, around there, B.C., uh, sorry, you get the range. In the, in the 6th century B.C., Babylon, Iraq, comes in and takes them out and takes them away to Iraq where uh, they will come back in 70 years, just a small remnant under Nehemiah and Ezra, and they'll rebuild right? And so that's really what we're waiting for. Chapter 17, you'll see the north go. And then in the very last chapter, you will see the south go. And so really, we're just, the Lord is trying the whole book, turn to me. That's the key verse. Just turn to me. Why put yourself through all of this anguish? Why will you lose the promised land? There's no reason. The land flowing with milk and honey, the land that I gave you, your inheritance. Why, why won't you submit to me and enjoy the very thing that I have uh, planned for you. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> oh, you are already on it. Okay, God. <laughs> yeah, Israel's not the only one prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Who is my worst enemy? Me. Amen. Somebody pointed to them and said, me, when I asked, who's my worst enemy, and I see me, I'm like, you are? What? (laughs) All right. So the immediate context now, before we, thank you for that slide, uh, before we dive in here to chapter three, is God's spotlight is now on Elisha, 
The Lord is establishing him as his man so that Israel knows that there's a man of God that they could go to and that uh, through signs and wonders and miracles. So Elisha has crossed the Jordan on dry ground. You'll remember that with his cloak and it was awesome. And Elisha's also, with God's help, purified uh, the poisonous springs there at Jericho. And uh, uh, also had a victorious encounter with 42 uh, youths. All right, the, the 42 young rebels, they're called youths in the Bible. So I call them youths because they're very rebellious. And so uh, who, they have foolishly decided uh, to face off with him at Bethel, where the golden calf ministry was. They were mocking and opposing him, and we saw that last week, and really mocking and um, opposing God and God's work. And so Elisha just pulled, said to the Lord, a cry for help, Lord, pull back your hand. That's what the word curse means, to, to, to pull back your blessing and protect me. And the bears came out, and so they had to bear the consequences. I used that last week uh, because of their rebellion, all right? Where's my drummer when I'm... All right. All right, so now um, word is out. People now know there's a man of God in Israel, all right? Onward, verse 1. Joram, now of the north, right? Ahab's kid, son of Joab, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria, which is the new capital, all right, for them. Okay, they did they disrespected Jerusalem. Now it's Samaria. In the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the south. And he reigned twelve years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So let's pause there. If you're taking notes, just Joram's downfall, all right? So just a quick summary statement here of Joram's reign. It it will be for 12 years, and the Lord is very patient with him. He's got the prophecy of doom hanging over his head. The Lord already told his father, you're going to die, Ahab, and your sons are going to die, and your wife, Jezebel, is going to die. And and uh, and they, he is waiting patiently and wooing them and trying to avert that disaster. And uh, so it starts out by telling you right here, Joram's downfall is this: that he stops short of full repentance of faith. So he he uh, it says he's not as bad as his parents. But when your parents are Ahab and Jezebel, that's not a compliment, all right? That's like saying, well, you know, he wasn't as bad as Hitler. Uh, Yeah, okay, so, yeah. So we get the picture. Uh, And so um, Joram, this king of Israel now, um, he's an evil man, but he didn't reach the heights, or should I say the depths, of a wicked mom and dad, but wicked nevertheless. He got rid of the altar for um, Baal worship, which is a good thing, but probably for the wrong reason. And I like what one commentator was saying about that. 
unrepented sinners like to comfort themselves and assuage their conscience or appease their consciences and boost their public image by doing random acts of kindness, good deeds, which really, upon closer look, are very self-serving. In other words, people who don't walk with the Lord love to give to charity and um, help people in need or participate in the Rotary Club. All of those things are good, but you can never... By a good deed, justify yourself before the Lord. And that's where the evil part comes. I want nothing to do with him or his sacrifice, but I'm going to earn my way by offering, as it is, as it were, the fruit of my uh, hands, like Cain's religion. God said, you'll approach me with a sacrifice of blood. And one brother gets it. And the other one says, you know, my fruits and veggies and my hard work should be good enough for you. And that's why uh, his offering was rejected. Now, the altar of Baal was removed, right? Um, Perhaps because he saw, hey, my dad was a Baal worshiper and uh, he uh, was taken out with an arrow. And my brother was a Baal worshiper and he fell off the balcony. And so maybe I should do away with uh, the Baal worship. And so uh, he does away with that, but then it says he clung to the sins of Jeroboam in that calf worship. So a hundred years earlier, Jeroboam was the first one who came up with the idea, we're splitting the kingdom and I'm going to, for political reasons, put the calves in at Bethel so they don't have to go down and... uh, Uh, go down to Jerusalem and and maybe defect over there. And so for political gain, he kept the golden calves in place there. Uh, Matthew Henry said uh, this of that kind of thing. He was one of those who do not truly or fully repent and change, who only part with the sins that cost them, but continue their affection with the sins by which they gain. So there's a half-hearted reform here and uh, probably, and I think this is the best idea. Here's why he did it. He, he's going to need King Jehoshaphat's help. You can put the divided slide up there just to keep everybody straight. He's going to need King Jehoshaphat's an experienced commander-in-chief. He's older. He's like his father's age, right? He's a young guy and he's going to need his help because he's going to go to war with Moab. So he wants to impress Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat's a real believer. All right? So he's doing this as a show, commentators say. He's going to get rid of his father's big thing was Baal worship. Jezebel loved Baal worship. So he's going to get rid of that, right? But in his heart, nothing really has changed. He wants to impress Jehoshaphat because he's about to call him and say, hey, will you fight with me? I need your help. And so uh, a, a good deed, but for the wrong reason. So this token act that uh, really counts for nothing, but it characterizes his 12-year reign. Moving on, four through nine. Now, Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to supply the king of Israel with 100,000 lambs and with the wool of 100,000 rams as well here. Lambs and rams, sorry. All right. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. 
The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Sounds familiar. He said that to his father who was fighting Syria at the time, Ahab. Same response, and we'll talk about that. By what route shall we attack? So the young man is asking the older man, Jehoshaphat, hey, I need some counsel here, he asked. And here's his answer. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So we've got a three-king alliance going against uh, Moab. Now, I'll show you a map about that in just a bit as soon as we get some information here. So number two is Moab's uprising. Now, uh, the country of Moab has always been a thorn in Israel's side. Uh, It is located on the east side of the Dead Sea and it's modern day Jordan, all right? So the, uh, the descendants of Lot's oldest daughter through an incestuous relationship with their father produced the Moabites. Uh, That's in Genesis 19 and viewer discretion is advised. (laughs) Maybe you need to read Genesis 19 and you'll see why I said that. All right. Under King David, Moab was uh, subdued. But once the kingdom split like this, then Moab took an opportunity to throw off its occupiers, which was Israel, all right? So during the divided kingdom, they couldn't, because their leadership was so poor, they couldn't keep Moab down. Now, Ahab did a good job keeping Moab in its place. But as soon as Ahab died and the two brothers come up, the young men, Moab sees their opportunity to throw off the shackles of of having to be taxed this is really the lambs and the rams are really, they're, they're occupied and they play, play tribute, all right, which is really a way of, of being taxed. And Israel came to rely on all of that livestock and all of that wool. So the change in administration comes and King Misha uh, wants to uh, rebel. And not only does he not send the taxation part, he, Moab's ready uh, to attack as a military threat. So Joram needs help, so he asks, now follow this, all right? He asks his sister's father-in-law, Jehoshaphat. See, there's a marriage between uh, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter marries Jehoshaphat's son. Okay, so the two brothers there are the two, yeah, they're fathers-in-law. Thank you very much. Marianne, you've been very helpful the last few sermons. <laughs> I think it's awesome. All right, and so he's going to ask his, his in-law really for some help, and that's why Jehoshaphat's emphatic yes there, verse 7 He uses the same language that he used with Ahab when Ahab asked for help with Syria there back in 1 Kings 22. So he says, I'm with you, man. What's mine is yours. My tanks are your tanks. My soldiers are your soldiers. And so um, Jehoshaphat, listen, he's a good king, but he's got a weakness. And his weakness is that 
peace at any cost. He's the kind of guy who just says, can we all just be friends? And it doesn't really matter that you are wicked and you love the golden calves. Let's just, yeah, my horses, your horses. He just, he has a good heart. He's a good king. But, but he doesn't keep the boundaries straight. And he gets them in trouble all the time. And the scriptures kind of convict him of that kind of mentality. And so um, uh, he's joining hands and hearts, you know, with wicked people. And, and, and when you do that, you usually get into trouble. Good heart, but not smart. And, you know, I was thinking about that with, uh, with Christians. Christians. Christians who have dysfunctional, godless families. Um, Christians who keep on going over for Christmas dinner. You know, even though the Christmas dinner ends up on the floor, a 911 gets called, there's drunkenness, profanity, screaming, and it's a big nightmare, and then they do it again the next year. But they, because they always think this year it's Christmas, they're my family, you know, I'm just going to go down there and it's going to be magically better, you know. And this is uh, Jehoshaphat's problem. He does this all the time. He made an alliance with, with uh, Ahab, with uh, commercial ships. They got crushed and destroyed. He doesn't learn. He keeps on saying it. And now the boy is asking, hey, will you go with me to war? Just like you did with my dad. Oh, yeah. Why can't we be friends and hold hands? But sometimes you know you're not supposed to do that. It's one thing about being friendly and loving and reaching out. And it's another thing to lock arms and hearts so let the holy spirit guide you with that you know psalm 1 healthy boundaries people it says we're not supposed to walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or sit uh with in the seat of mockers for a reason reach out be hospitable be kind and loving always but guard your heart guard your heart okay so the king seeks Jehoshaphat's uh, counsel now. And now we'll, we'll show you the map of what's going to happen now. And so here's what Jehoshaphat says. Hey, I got an idea. Let's you and me, Israel and Judah, go through Edom around the Dead Sea and meet them here. They, uh, this isn't dangerous because we'd have to go through Ammon and the Ammonites may be a problem. So let's not do that. Let's go through down around through the desert and also we can enlist the king of Edom because they appointed that king because they are uh, occupying Edom at this time. Israel is. Judah, I should say. All right. So now they've got three kings and they're going to go around through the desert. This is just terribly (laughs) barren wilderness of nothingness. All right. We've been in that region and it is just one big uh, desert, and so that's what's going to happen there. Uh, three kings united. So no prayer, no seeking God. Uh, there's only one king there that knows the Lord, and that king is not seeking the Lord. All right, uh, verses 9 through 11. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. All right? After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel, Joram, right? 
Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? And an officer of the king of Israel answers, Elisha is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So let's pause there, number three. Um, A great army, uh, enough manpower, right? But apparently lacking God power. And the the lack of water is going to be the way to point that out to these uh, three kings and their armies. So uh, there's a 4,000-foot climb in less than four miles there. Uh, The kings and the generals are expecting to find water in what is called a wadi. And the wadi is an Arabic word for like a a valley or a riverbed. And usually they're pretty dried out, but there could be springs of water and uh, streams and creeks through that, those little ravines, and they were expecting that. Now, um, but it was dry, really dry. And I'm going to slide a picture of that area for you, the wilderness. That's exactly where they were. That's exactly where Masada and the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that, that's where they, they came through there. And they were expecting in those little channels to find water. But the problem was there was no water there. Uh, a lot of commentators talked about this, a very interesting sight. Um, all these proud, strong military guys, right? Self-made men, uh, who have no interest in acknowledging God, they're brought to their knees because they need a drink of water. Now, uh, unbelievers pursue things in this life. They attain wealth and fame and careers and they have all kinds of accomplishments and without acknowledging God. But soon, they have to be reminded of their true helplessness. One breath, just one breath, and it all comes to an end. Nobody is independent of the grace of God. And sometimes it's just something as simple as a lack of water to get that point across. And so it's their thirst that brings them to God and and God then can save the day. Charles Spurgeon said, it's a blessed thirst. The uh, The heavens sent that need that wakes the calloused soul that causes the hardened heart to seek the Lord. If it's a loss, a failure, a pain so deep, it drives you to thirst for relief in the God you have been ignoring, then it's a blessed thirst indeed. Now, I am a little smiley face down here, and I put down there, don't wait until there's no water in the wadi. You know, just don't, don't, don't. Don't wait, because God, when we harden our hearts and we get off track, God allows us to experience the, un, uh, the discomfort of thirsting. Uh, and nobody likes to be thirsty or hungry, but the Lord said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after a right relationship with God at his kingdom, for they should be filled but you may be blessed, Jesus says, when you hunger and thirst, but it's certainly not a comfortable feeling. Who likes to be really, really hungry? Who likes to be really, really thirsty? 
It's an agitation of soul. It's something that drives you. It's something that focuses you. I've got to get this thing. And the Lord says, you're blessed if that thing is right relationship with him. And so this thirst is burning in their hearts and souls. And so they're, they're thirsty um, for, uh, to find a refuge in the Lord. So two attitudes here, uh, verse 10 and 11, love it. They both understand, both kings understand that there's a spiritual dynamic to their crisis. All right? So king number one, Joram. He's got the guilty conscience, verse 10. This is God's fault. He's going to kill us. We're all going to die. He's brought us out here to kill us all. Right? So he sees, because he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, he sees the trouble as judgment, and he avoids the Lord. Now the other guy walks with the Lord and sees it as kind of a a rebuke and like, hey, buddy, look up here. Right? And so Jehoshaphat sees the crisis as a call to seek God for help. So the question goes out, hey, anybody know a trustworthy man of God? We can consult. Notice King Joram doesn't know, right? Why would he know of any believing man, right? So somebody in the, one of his attendants says, hey, there's Elisha. He was Elijah's understudy, assistant. He would pour water on the guy's hands. What a beautiful picture of this guy, Elisha. For 10 years, he followed Elijah around serving him and being his mentee. He, Elijah was his mentor, right? And so they didn't have faucets. And so if you really wanted to wash your hands, you'd have somebody pour the water over your hands and that would be like, oh, hey, wow, it's, a, it's really nice to wash your hands that way. And that's how they describe this guy, ran around following him so that he could be his faucet so he could wash his hands. Little did he know that God was raising him up? And here he was as a gopher in the wilderness following this, this hairy dude around, you know? Uh, Elijah was a hairy man. And, and so uh, that's what God does. God centers you and grounds you first and teaches you how to be other-centered and how to live in obscurity. And did Elisha know that God was raising him up to do great things? Well, that's why Jesus said the greatest... Of uh, greatest among you must be your servant. And so once he puts the quality of greatness in Elisha and grounds him in servitude and humility, now he could present him on stage to three kings can come to his tent door and he's able to hear from God without being biased, without being intimidated, without telling them what he thinks they want to hear because he's been raised up. Let's uh, go on, 12 through 19. Jehoshaphat said, well, the word of the Lord is with him. Okay, so we've got our guy. We've just got to go find him now. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, all three kings, went down to Elisha. Elisha said to the king of Israel, the bad guy, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. Verse 14. (laughs) Verse 14, Elisha says, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I didn't have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, 
I wouldn't look at you or even notice you. Attitude 15. But now bring me a harpist, a worship guy. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches or pits. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And he will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up their springs, and ruin every good field with stones. Well, let's talk about that. So number four, God has sought and an answer comes. So the three kings humble themselves. You've got to say that because they're going to go to Elisha's tent. Now, apparently... God has told, the Holy Spirit has told Elisha to be in the mix. So he's got his tent in there. He's tagging along. The Lord probably didn't even tell him why. But he knows he needed to be with them on this trek. And so there he's nearby and somebody knows about it. Uh, and it doesn't start off very well. Verse 13, uh, when he opens the flap of the tent, Elisha expresses his honest feelings about seeing Ahab's son there, wicked King Joram. And uh, he's got a feisty attitude, as most prophets do in the Old Testament. And he says, listen, he says, you. He says, you and I have absolutely nothing in common. Go hire your parents' sorcerers to tell you what to do. Something wrong with the psychic hotline? You know, that's the kind of attitude that I happen to like. Okay, verse 13. Sorry. Uh, verse 13, Joram says, um, I can't do that. I can't go to my mom and dad's gods because this thing is about the Lord. So how could I go back to them? He's, he's answering them. Hey, listen, I, I'm sorry. I probably would, but I can't because this, this problem involves the Lord because he's the one who's called us out here to kill us. All right? So, so I've got to come to you because apparently you have a relationship with him. All right. So that's exactly what's going on here. So, and then he adds this. So Elisha says, well, I would slam the door shut or zip up the door in your face. Uh, uh, if it weren't my respect for Jehoshaphat, verse 15. So he says, now go get me a worship leader. Love this. You've upset me. I'm not in the right frame of mind. I've, I'm angry. I can't hear from the Lord straight right now. Go get me a worship leader. And he brings in the harp. And he starts singing. And he's in, he's in the right place. Music. Spiritual. Power. When you've had a little carnal upset or a spat, with a loved one, and your heart is hard, go to the worship music. Get quiet somewhere. Turn that on. Dim the lights. You will not keep your hard heart. You cannot. You cannot do it. It's power. All you have to do is start in the, in the car on your way somewhere where you're all messed up about something and you just turn on the worship music and you're worshiping. There, there's power in it. Go get the harvest. Call the worship guy. Bring him to my tent. 
and he starts playing and he starts lifting up songs and psalms and spiritual hymns and he can hear, he can hear again and the Lord speaks to him. And so uh, here's what God says. Uh, Here comes the message and it's wonderful. Number one, he says, prepare for water and lots of it, a flood. Dig retaining ditches and pits to catch the overflow. Uh, So make the valley full of them. Will the animals have to drink or or the flash flood will come and there'll be no pools anywhere. It'll just all go away. So I want you to cooperate with me. And, And then he says, I love this. I want you to fill the valley with the ditches, even though you're not going to see any storm clouds or feel any rain. Lord, I want you in faith. Here are men who are dying of thirst. And he's telling them, I want you to start digging, digging and working hard and cooperate with me. Though you're not going to see a storm cloud in the sky. And then he says, uh, you know, Elisha adds, hey, it's not hard for him. And uh, he's, uh, he's going to hand the Moabites over to you. And listen, these guys really believe because they're going to start digging. Now, digging ditches to hold what God has promised to send. This is a really big application for us uh, to, to benefit what, what God wants to do in our hearts and lives. He says, cooperate with me, prepare for it. Act and live in such a way that you really believe that I'm going to answer your prayers, that I'm going to bring a blessing. God is saying, really, show me that you believe that I'm going to come through here. Cooperate with me. Work with me. He loves to get our our hand involved. We're co-laborers with Christ. And so I'm sure it's the last thing that these guys wanted to do is start to dig especially with no rain clouds. So what were they saying? We believe the word of the Lord. He put them in a situation where they had expressed faith. God just, God just loves that. And so uh, we dig a lot of ditches around here. I, I like to dig ditches. And let me give you an example of how you dig a spiritual ditch for the Lord. Uh, this, just this last quarter... Nobody that I knew wanted to get baptized. I put baptism on because I love to baptize people and I know God wants to save people and uh, it's just wonderful when it happens. But there were, there's nobody wanted to get baptized. I put it on there. I'm going to prepare, right? Once that thing goes up, not only do people who need to be baptized, who have already saved, start to surface. But then suddenly, and this happens every single time, people start getting saved. And, and I was in the pool that we had already uh, reserved with the house and the family and the people, and we already put it up there, and we had the sign-up sheet. The ditch is dug. Now God says, hey, they've, they've dug the trench They're expecting me to fill it with something. That would be people who are newly saved who need to get baptized. And one by one, the the names start growing on the list. And I'm in the pool thinking, all of this came from a thought, do I even know anybody who needs to be baptized in our church? No, I don't know anybody. But I put it out there, and we started building 
the infrastructure for this thing with no people, right? And then suddenly there are 12 people in a row. The most fantastic testimonies of brand new believers since the, since the announcement was even made. And I was thinking about, Lord, this just could have been, none of this could have happened had the ditch not been prepared. Dig the ditches. Dig the ditches in your life. Get ready. Prepare. Believe that God is going to do that thing he's been saying. And, and, and he will. It's not to manipulate God. We're talking about things where we know he wants to do something. Not to try to get him to do something, but to cooperate with something that he's told us he wants to do. There's a difference there. Charles Spurgeon said this to his church one Sunday morning about this passage. He said, if we expect to obtain the Holy Spirit's blessing, we must prepare for his reception. Make this valley full of trenches or ditches is an order which is given me this morning for the members of this church. Make ready for the Holy Spirit's power. Be prepared to receive that which he is about to give. Each man in his place and each woman in her sphere make the whole of the church full of trenches for the reception of the divine water of floods. Here's what he's saying. Everybody says, start serving. Sign up. People are coming. We're going to need extra hands. So as you prepare, as Sunday school is equipped, as, you, as uh, people who sponsor the youth groups, as giving increases because when more people come, there's more resources needed. More prayers for wisdom. More personnel and staffing. That's why we add to our staff, we're digging ditches and just saying, God. That's why we go on mission trips. We, we just take the step and say, God, here we are. We're available. Use us. And so... We dig ditches. We're saying, let's do this together. Okay, let's finish up. The next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, so the ditches have been dug and they're waiting. <laughs> no clouds in the sky, but it's time for morning devotions. And there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. You go back to the math. 22, when they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Hareth Seth uh, was left with its stones in place. That's the capital of Moab. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. They used to be friends. They're not friends anymore. But they failed. 
Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. All right, so um, number four, the water comes as promised. What a blessing to God and life-giving. And very interesting, it's a curse to the unbelievers and the cause of their demise, demise, I should say. So who's happy they dug the ditches? (laughs) They're very happy. And all the trenches there for the animals to drink. And notice verse 20, no coincidence about when the water would come. It was at the time of the morning sacrifice. So before they got started with their day, there was sacrifice. There was a worship service. There were hymns sung. There were, they had morning devotions. While they're assembled worshiping the Lord, the water comes down. That's a video that I'm ordering when I get there because I, I need to see that because that's just, just wonderful. And so um, how did that happen, by the way? Was there a... a a storm up in the mountains somewhere. He, the Lord does not want Moab to see the water because they're going to be confused about the water because they don't know it's rained. They don't know there are pools of water everywhere. So they're going to be deceived by those pools of water because they have not seen the storm. So God used the no rain and no storm for the faith of the Israelites and the allied forces to be tested as well as to deceive and to trick the enemy of God, Moab and Israel, to come in and be tricked by the the appearance of blood. And so now, for me, there should not now be one more, one backslider in all of Israel, Judah, or Edom. They saw with their own eyes. They dug those ditches. They didn't see any rain. And then suddenly a flash, a flash flood. That Joe Ram, he should have gone home and, and t- cast down those golden calves and, and instituted reform in the nation. Why? How could anybody leave a miracle of the Lord like that and go back to life as it was? I... I just don't get it. That's just a serious miracle. I mean, they could tell testimonies, man. They could tell a testimony about that story. So, uh, but sadly, like most works of God in the lives of perpetual backsliders, uh, it's a temporary thing. Luke chapter 8, Jesus talks about the seed of the gospel going into a heart that has shallow heart syndrome. And shallow soil syndrome means that there is an initial emotional reaction and some sign of something happening. But then the sun comes up and the heat comes down and the plant just withers away to nothing because there's no root. There's no real life. It's just an emotional reaction. And I think that all these guys who saw that there probably was like, praise the Lord. And then what? They go back. The, the calves have to be removed by the next king. Joe, Joe Ram goes back 12 years. 
goes back and bows before the golden calves after that miracle. And after God gives him a, a, a successful uh, victory against the Moabites. When God does, one commentator said this, when God does a spiritual work in your midst and answers prayer or gets your attention in a supernatural way and your heart is softened and your faith is increased, act immediately with all your might to build on that momentum so that God's efforts with you will not be to no avail. You see? They just prolong. They were like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then the victory comes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And then they go back and they just decide, you know what? I'm just going to I'm just going to wait before I make the big changes. That's a nice way of saying no to God. Is oh, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. No, you're not just waiting. You've decided to say no. So, very interesting to me as we wrap up here the waters of life and blessing to the Israelites are waters of death and deception to the enemy. So the reddish soil in the Arabian desert there uh, makes the waters kind of gleam red a little bit. And um, very interesting in their thinking, Moab's looking on, they see the glimmer of red everywhere. They don't know it's rained. And so they're thinking that Edom, Israel, and Judah who are all three antagonists. All three of them hate each other, right? They're thinking they, that something went bad. They turned on each other. They had a fallout, and they wiped each other out. Let's go, and now their eyes get big. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Let's go get rich. So they're charging, not with weapons in hands, but with greed in their eyes and bags wide open, and who can get there first and get the stuff, right? So they come charging over the next knoll and there's Israel, Judah, and Edom, not with bags, not with distractions, but with swords drawn. And these guys are running with their bags wide open and then they see that. Not good. They turn and run, and then you're wondering, why do they have to cut down the trees and stop up the wells and throw rocks on their fields for? You know why? Because they're going to do it again. They're going to do it again, and the Lord wants the enemy of Israel to be stopped from repeating the cycle of wiping Israel out. If Israel gets wiped out, you don't have a Jesus If Israel is gone, you don't have a savior of the world. That's why the Lord has to deal so harshly with Israel's enemies who are satanically inspired to wipe out Israel so that we can't have a savior. And so the Lord just says, listen, I've worked with these people for centuries. Chase them back and immobilize them from being able to continue to be a threat to Israel my nation and my purposes with the Messiah coming out there. Now, the last thing that you read, so sad, the King Misha, come on. Chemosh is their God. And the highest sacrifice for Chemosh is your own child sacrifice. So he takes the heir to his throne and says, listen, I'm going to try one more time. 700 guys, come with me. Let's try to go to Edom, our former allies. So they come back through Edom 
and Edom defeats them. So he takes his son and publicly on the wall where everybody can see, sacrifices him. Now, the wording in Hebrew gives commentators a real hard time at the end because it says that Israel's, uh, the fury against Israel, it can also read Israel's indignation at that deed. So Israel just got so sick by what they did that they said, we've reached our objective, we're out of here. And so the allied troops, they left because they, they had reached their objectives. But really, a lot of commentators said that, that that just kind of finished it off. They were just like, you know, this is a tragedy. Let's go. We've, we've accomplished everything that we set out to do. And so, um, you know what's interesting to me this King Misha, who says, listen, things are so tough, I, I got to give my, my son as a sacrifice. How ironic. Do you see where I'm headed with this? God didn't want him to give the sacrifice of his son. He wanted, to, he, he wanted the king to accept the God who would give his son as a sacrifice for wicked King Misha and his wicked nation that uh, serve gods who... Uh, accept children as their sacrifices like that. And so uh, he was not open to that. And uh, it's sad because God, God's heart goes out to those, that, that country and that king as well. Okay, I have reflections. I wrote down six things now as I just kind of collected my thoughts and I passed them along to you after I read the chapter. I just scooted back and said these following things. Number one, good deeds from an evil heart mean nothing to God. It's good deeds from a redeemed heart that count. Our hearts need to be right with him before our actions are acceptable. Number two, not seeking God before a major undertaking puts you in a vulnerable place. Amen? Hello? Number three, Sometimes a burning need is a blessing in disguise because it gets you thirsty for God and helps you to find in him the life you're looking for. Number four, music has great spiritual power. Number five, we must be busy anticipating the way God wants us to be, to to use us, to bless us by preparing our lives and digging ditches by faith. God is going to fill them with blessing. And lastly, our God isn't asking for our sacrifices to make us right with him, but he's wanting us to receive his. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this awesome chapter filled with wonderful truths that are so important to us. And Lord, I know you spoke to me through this chapter, and I know you, you always, if we're listening, you're speaking. We've got your word here, and Lord, so whatever it is you said to our hearts, would you help us to act immediately and strike while the iron is hot? We thank you for speaking to us and loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.